Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 31, What's Inside? In this episode, scientists finally figure out the structure of atoms. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. In our last episode, we found out that uranium, polonium, and radium were radioactive, but scientists around the year 1900 found several other radioactive elements, including actinium, thorium, and radon. Besides being, well, oddly radioactive, researchers could use these elements in various experiments as sources for particles. If you put a sample of a radioactive source in a lead box, the lead contains the radiation. Now poke a hole into the lead box, and radiation can escape from the hole rather like a gun, in this case a radiation or particle gun. One of the most important experimenters of this particle gun technique was Ernest Rutherford, mentioned in recent episodes. Beginning around 1906, he took a particle gun of this sort and shot subatomic particles at thin metal foils, particularly gold foil. His preferred particle was alpha particles with a mass of a helium atom, so their speed and mass created enough particle inertia to do some kind of damage to the foil. His most famous experiment of that time was such a particle gun shooting at gold foil only 0.4 micrometers thick and detecting what angle the alpha particles escaped or bounced off the foil. What stunned him was the following observation. Most alpha particles passed directly through the foil as though the foil didn't exist. Only a small number of alpha particles were deflected, and some of those almost bounced back toward the source, about 1 in 20,000 particles. As Rutherford put it, It was quite the most incredible event that has ever happened to me in my life. It was almost as incredible as if you fired a 15-inch shell at a piece of tissue paper, and it came back and hit you. How did he interpret this? Well, the gold foil was several hundred atoms thick. If most alpha particles just go right through this layer of metal, it follows that most of the atom is empty space. But also, a few alpha particles were deflected a lot, some almost rebounding backwards. So this implies a tiny, heavy, positive charge somewhere in the atom also. Therefore, Rutherford offered the model called the nuclear atom, which he proposed in 1911. The nuclear atom is constructed of a tiny central positive charge, the nucleus, where evidently the protons reside. Surrounding the nucleus, the electrons fly around. Electrons are so light that the heavy alpha particles just blast right past them. The nucleus itself was pretty much indestructible and was the evidence for the uncuttable aspect of the atom in Dalton's model. The electrons, however, are the source of chemical reactions. 
you can remove some electrons from the outer layer of the atom and create a positively charged ion. You can add some electrons to the outer layer of the atom and create a negatively charged ion. You can shift electrons from one atom to another and thus do chemistry. This is the heart of the chemical science: movement of electrons between atoms. This is what ties the structure of the atom to chemistry. Okay, but exactly how do atoms of different elements differ from each other? Chemists knew that different elements differ in mass, but how does that relate to subatomic structure? First came the German physicist Max von Laue in 1909. He knew that visible light diffracts through slits and pinholes, but what diffracted X-rays? Something with an array of atoms with a spacing similar to the wavelength of X-rays. So he suggested to use X-rays to probe the structure of crystals. Thus, Walter Friedrich and Paul Knipping in 1912 shot X-rays at crystals. What did they find? That crystals have a regular array of atoms with particular geometric arrangements for different compounds. That the X-rays he shot at the crystals are scattered in particular patterns, varying with the compound. The exact pattern you photograph can be measured, and then you can derive the wavelength of the X-rays from the arrangement of dots in the photograph. The wavelength of X-rays was shown to be about the distance between layers of atoms in crystals. Soon thereafter, William H. Bragg and son William L. Bragg. Shown X-rays at crystals too, but here, given a known X-ray wavelength and scattering angle off the crystal, you can determine the distances between ions in various salt crystals. The experiments showed that salts aren't molecules in the traditional sense, but infinite arrays of alternating positive and negative ions, such as sodium cations and chloride anions. Soon, X-ray crystallography became a mainstay of chemical analysis for determinations of distances between atoms in molecules as well. Later on, in the mid 20th century, we shall hear about one of the most famous X-ray diffraction photographs that would change biochemistry forever. In the prior year, 1911, the English physicist Charles Barkley. Determined that X-rays scatter in specific ways depending on the element. Particular elements produced particular sets of characteristic X-rays. So now you can determine what element you have based on the scattering of X-rays. The first element Barclay used was aluminum in his experiments. At this time, Antonius van den Broek, a Dutch amateur physicist, suggested the idea. That atomic number was the amount of charge in the atom's nucleus. In 1911, the atomic number, first used by Newlands back in 1864, was just a particular spot in the periodic table, and there was no experimental evidence for this notion. So the English physicist Henry Moseley, a couple of years after that, in 1913, found the following. Barclay's characteristic X-rays varied with the atomic weight of the elements. In particular, the characteristic X-rays wavelength decreased 
as the element's atomic weight rose. More exactly, there was an inverse relation between the X-ray's wavelength and the positive charge in the nucleus. A bigger charge meant a shorter characteristic X-ray wavelength. What was important about this? You can calculate the charge on the nucleus based on the X-rays scattered. From this, scientists showed that the hydrogen's nucleus was plus one, helium's was plus two, lithium's was plus three, beryllium's was plus four, and so on. The largest charge was uranium, with plus ninety-two in the nucleus. This nuclear charge is now called atomic number. And explained Mendeleev's occasional switcheroo with elements in his periodic table to get the properties to line up. Not only that, Robert Boyle's definition of an element suddenly went obsolete. Instead of something that can't be broken up into simpler materials, now we can say that specific elements had specific atomic numbers. All atoms of an element have the same atomic number. Sorry, Boyle. Not only that, but you can now predict exactly where the gaps are in the periodic table without hocus pocus. You can show precisely which atomic numbers are missing from known observations and look for them. By Moseley's day in 1913, there were only seven elements missing: 43, 61, 72, 75, 85, 87, and 91. Mosley himself said in his paper in Philosophical Magazine in 1913, "The prevalence of lines due to impurities suggests that this may prove a powerful method of chemical analysis. It may even lead to the discovery of missing elements, as it will be possible to predict the position of their characteristic lines." We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Of course, the search was on, and it took several decades to find them all. He also definitely showed that the crazy lanthanide series of elements, all almost but not quite identical, could only consist of fifteen in total. By the way, this is one method that Martian rovers determine the elements from samples while on the Martian surface. By X-rays, we can also definitively say that there are no elements with atomic weights smaller than hydrogen. So Mendeleev's prediction of an element with one-sixth the atomic weight of hydrogen was bogus. Unfortunately, he died six years before Mosley's work, so he was unaware of this. Let's continue with the nuclear model. For a neutral atom which has no electrical charge, the number of electrons on the outside has to equal the number of protons in the nucleus. 
So, for an aluminum atom with atomic number of 13, that means the atom has 13 protons and 13 electrons. Aluminum often likes to ionize to a plus 3 charge, so such an aluminum atom has 13 protons, like all aluminum atoms, but only 10 electrons. It is missing three negative charges and is left with a plus 3 charge. But aluminum's atomic weight is 27. Where is the extra 14 units of mass coming from? The nucleus is charged plus 13, so whatever is in the nucleus has to be uncharged neutral. And now we add in the neutrons, which are almost the same mass as protons. If we toss 14 neutrons into the nucleus, we have a mass of 27 with a charge of plus 13. We ignore the mass of the electrons because they weigh only a fraction of a proton or neutron. Together, we can call protons and neutrons by the generic term nucleons. Suddenly, atoms are structured with smaller particles inside. Imagine the surprise and shock of scientists in the first part of the 20th century figuring out what had stumped philosophers for thousands of years. Again, all this comes directly from radioactivity, X-rays, and the electron in the mid-1890s. And all this research now justified, at least somewhat, Prout's hypothesis of a century earlier that all atoms were built from hydrogen atoms. If you substitute the word nucleon for the word hydrogen, then this kind of works, as long as we ignore electrons. I want to point out what happened to Henry Moseley shortly after his likely Nobel Prize-winning research, as Rutherford believed. In August 1914, the Great War, later unfortunately renamed World War I, started. Out of a sense of duty to the British nation, Moseley enlisted in the army with the Royal Engineers. Moseley was a technical officer in communications from April 1915 in the Battle of Gallipoli in Turkey. A sniper killed him there on August 10, 1915, at the Battle of Suvla Bay, at the age of 27. In response, Robert Milliken of Oil Drop Experiment fame said, In a research which is destined to rank as one of the dozen most brilliant in conception, skillful in execution, and illuminating in results in the history of science, a young man, 26 years old, threw open the windows through which we can glimpse the subatomic world with a definiteness and certainty never dreamed of before. Had the European war had no other result than the snuffing out of this young life, that alone would make it one of the most hideous and most irreparable crimes in history. Because of the outcry at sacrificing such a promising young scientist to war, and through lobbying on Rutherford's behalf, His Majesty's government stopped allowing famous scientists to serve in frontline military purposes. We now return to the 1890s and Wilhelm Wien again, whom we met studying canal rays in the last episode. Another of Wien's interests was heat, in particular the heat that hot objects emit in the form of infrared light. It turns out that hot objects emit all kinds of light, including infrared, visible, ultraviolet, and so on, in a distribution that can be plotted 
in the same way that molecular speeds can be plotted in the kinetic theory of gases. For objects at various temperatures, the spectrum of light they emit varies with temperature. The cooler the object, the longer the wavelengths of light. Although all wavelengths are possible, in fact, if the object is cool enough, it emits primarily infrared light, which we cannot see, but can feel through our skin as heat. If you heat up the object hot enough, the visible color it emits starts as red, then orange, then yellow. Though again, all wavelengths are possible, just like all molecular speeds are possible in a gas. All objects are always emitting light, even us. But it's mostly infrared because we aren't hot enough to see it. This spectrum of light that an object emits is called a blackbody spectrum. One of the problems in late 19th-century science was figuring out the precise model to explain the spectrum, and this was Veen's research in 1896. Veen came up with an empirical model that worked for shorter wavelengths of light, but failed to model well longer wavelengths. On the other hand, in 1900, Lord Rayleigh came up with another model that worked at long wavelengths, but not at shorter wavelengths. It was improved by James Jeans in 1905, but still failed at short wavelengths, which are the ultraviolet wavelengths of light. The failure was that a black body emission was modeled as emitting infinite amounts of light at short wavelengths, which is obviously wrong. This failure became called the ultraviolet catastrophe. Coined in 1911 by Paul Ehrenfest, and showed a failure of current physics at that time to model this light emission correctly. In essence, you can use the Veen method or the Rayleigh-Jeans method, but not both simultaneously. At the same time that Lord Rayleigh did his work, a German physicist named Max Planck was trying out a number of approaches based on current physics of the day. To solve this blackbody problem, but they never worked. As Planck put it later, his next approach was quote, "an act of desperation." Unquote. He made a bizarre assumption that a blackbody emitter can only emit light energy of quantized values, that is, specific values that are multiples of a basic unit, h times nu. Where the Greek letter nu stands for the frequency of light coming out, and h is really a fudge factor, now called Planck's constant, or also Planck's action quantum. These units of h times nu are called photons, or atoms of light, if you like. Planck's theory required whatever was vibrating in the black body to have specific values of vibration. And so the vibration was quantized too. Planck's model allowed for high-frequency, high-energy ultraviolet oscillations to radiate only if there is enough energy available. If there is little energy available, the chance of such oscillations is small, and so we avoid the ultraviolet catastrophe. If we consider this assumption carefully, we can see why Planck called this desperation to make things work out properly. Light, always known to be waves since Thomas Young in 1801, now was also particles, or maybe wave particles, or something like that. Light cannot be of any possible energy and wavelength, but only of allowable wavelengths based on this fudge factor h. 
which we now know has the value of 6.6 times 10 to the minus 34 joules per hertz. Planck's constant is tiny, so that we almost never notice it in everyday life, hence its discovery as late as 1900. But it's not zero. This assumption that light is quantized into allowable units is called quantum theory. Quantum is a Latin word meaning how much. Quantum theory, as we shall see, will take over our view of the atom and its subatomic particles in short order, but right now, in 1900, it is only considered to be a property of light. After X-rays, radioactivity, and the electron, Planck's assumption of quantization radically changed all of science forever, and he received the Nobel Prize for it in 1919. Planck's work thus divided classical physics before 1900 based on Newton's laws, and modern physics after 1900, which needs to account for non-common-sense observations on the microscopic quantum scale. Armed with this quantization of light, Einstein in 1905 was able to explain exactly what was going on in the photoelectric effect. You need to shine a certain amount of light energy, or, restated, photons of a minimum energy, onto metal atoms to kick out their electrons with that energy. Below this minimum quantum of light, illumination of the metal does nothing. Apparently, these outer electrons in atoms need a minimum amount of energy to be released. Of course, that implies that electrons aren't flying around atoms with any possible energy, but with quantized energy too. We are beginning to link this quantum theory to electrons, and therefore to chemistry. Things are beginning to get weirder and weirder. Planck's theory was applied by Dutch-American physicist Peter Debye to specific heats of solids to help explain Dulong and Petit's observations of a century earlier. And Walter Nernst used Planck's idea to help explain ionic motion in solution. All of a sudden, Planck's idea, first treated with skepticism in the science world, began to be accepted. Which makes us go back to spectroscopy again, and the Swiss mathematician Johann Jakob Balmer. In 1885, he studied the spectrum of hydrogen gas and determined a relatively simple mathematical formula to calculate wavelengths for the hydrogen spectral lines. He published his research in the journal Annalen der Physik und Chemie. Why the formula worked, no one knew. And it only worked for hydrogen and no other elements. A second series of hydrogen spectral lines was discovered by American physicist Theodore Lyman in 1906, but again, why formulas to predict those lines worked, no one knew. And we reach Niels Bohr, Danish physicist in 1913, who put together Rutherford's model of an atom with a heavy central positive nucleus, which supported Nagaoka's original view of a planetary atom, a light negative electron flying around the nucleus, Planck's quantization of light, and various spectra of hydrogen. The problem he solved was that a negative electron would spiral down into a positive nucleus, but that never happens. Bohr gave the following postulates in his own words. 1. 
An atomic system possesses a number of states in which no emission of energy radiation takes place, even if the particles are in motion relative to each other. The states are denoted as stationary states of the system. 2. Any emission or absorption of energy radiation will correspond to the transition between two stationary states. The radiation emitted during such a transition is homogeneous and the frequency nu is determined by h times nu. 3. That the dynamical equilibrium of the system in the stationary states is governed by the ordinary laws of mechanics, while these laws do not hold for the transition of one state to another. So, an atom can have an electron flying around in a circular stationary state. It can absorb a photon of energy h times nu and move to another higher stationary state. It can drop down from the higher stationary state and emit a photon of energy h times nu. It turns out that the angular momentum of an electron in such an orbit around the nucleus can have a minimum of h over 2 pi, and higher states are multiples of h over 2 pi. Using these rules, Bohr was able to create a working model of a hydrogen atom that matched the known spectra. Because there is a minimum of energy for an electron, it can never spiral into the nucleus. It also turns out that hydrogen-like ions follow this model as well. Any ion with one electron flying around the nucleus will work, such as helium plus, lithium 2 plus, beryllium 3 plus, and so on. But Bohr's model fails for all other atoms and ions. In our next episode, we shall examine a consequence of X-ray studies of elements and some consequences, finally, for chemistry. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.